like to um, begin tonight's talk with a very short teaching story. And this is uh, one that's in a number of different traditions, but this one's adapted from the Sufis about a woman who is so good that the angels ask God to give her the gift of miracles. And God wisely tells them to ask her if that is what she would wish. So, God wisely tells them to ask her if that's what she would wish. So the angels visit this good woman and offer her first the gift of healing by hands, and then the gift of conversion of souls, and lastly the gift of virtue, and she refuses them all. They insist that she choose a gift or they will choose one for her. Very well, she replies, I ask that I may do a great deal of good without ever knowing it. The angels were perplexed. They took counsel and resolved upon the following plan. Every time the saint shadow fell behind her, it would have the power to cure disease, soothe pain, and comfort sorrow. As she walked behind her, her shadow made arid paths green, caused withered plants to bloom, gave clear water to dried up brooks, fresh color to pale children, and joy to unhappy men and women. The saint simply went about her daily life diffusing virtue as the stars diffuse light and the flowers scent without ever being aware of it. The people, respecting her humility and love for fellow beings, followed her silently, never speaking to her about her miracles. Soon they even forgot her name and called her the Holy Shadow. And I really, uh, when I read that, I really love that because there's this sense that we all have, I think, that um, we love to care and we love to give and we love to feel not occupied with self. That doesn't mean we're not paying attention to the life within, but not caught up. We love that, that feeling of overflowing, that there's enough. And um, to touch others without even knowing about it, but just a sense that connectedness. My experience is that we're most at home when we're feeling that, when we're feeling that love and that gratitude. I, I re- recently read, and some of you have probably seen this, the book on, that describes uh, water crystals and how with different environments the crystals form differently, and when the environment has the word and the sound of love or gratitude, the most spectacular crystals are produced. I really like that. So tonight what I'd like to explore is what are the pathways back home to what we really know is who we are, our deepest sense of our being. And I described a little last night, I love Pema Chodron's phrase, the big squeeze, how each one of us here, and you can sense that we've been here today, two days, And each one of us will touch moments where there's really that sense of being at home, where there's that sense of what I sometimes call sacred presence, where without any resistance, without any grasping, there's that quality of recognizing what's happening, just pure presence with it, appreciative presence, kind presence, but presence. And so we touch that. And we really cherish that when we do. And then, over these two days, every one of us, I would imagine, I can speak for myself, gets caught in something smaller, 
where we have an idea about a self that is in some way on her way somewhere, trying to achieve something, maybe not doing it right. But in some way, we're caught in some sense of separation where we're, not, we're no longer belonging to our experience. We're no longer belonging to a sense of community. We're not belonging to awareness. And so what I'd like to explore tonight is the pathways home and use the traditional Buddhist languaging of refuge. Um, In my own practice, taking refuge has become a real centerpiece. I use for myself the words taking refuge in the beloved a lot as a way of um, reminding myself of really entrusting myself to, to the truth. And in the Buddhist teachings, Um, We take refuge in what is trustworthy, what is actually true. And there are three traditional refuges. Uh, Refuge in Buddha nature, in pure awareness, and refuge in the Dharma, the path, are exactly what's happening right now, really belonging to the moment. And then refuge in belonging to community and a sense of relatedness. And there are different expressions of homecoming. So, just to explore a bit tonight um, how they weave together and how we can really nurture those different pathways. And I think probably the most um, useful way to begin is to, to look at what is false refuge. Because in order to really understand how we come home in a way that's truly liberating, how we really experience bodhicitta, this awakened heart-mind, we have to see our patterns of how we, how we, every single day, get caught up in some, somehow or other taking refuge in what does not really express our true nature. So false refuge really is our reaction to discomfort. It's like when we feel discomfort, our what's called dukkha, unease, dissatisfaction, or anguish, all a matter of degree. Our reflex, rather than true refuge, one of those three pathways, is to grasp onto something that will give us security or safety or push away what we think is unpleasant. So I saw recently a, um, a cartoon and it had two goldfish and they were swimming in the wide open sea and one was saying to the other, so what is it your heart really desires? And the, uh, the response was, oh, I'd love to have the fishbowl, colored gravel, plastic plants, you know, a little castle, the whole, the whole deal. <laughs> I thought that was perfect. I thought that, that if we wanted like an image of the Dharma, it's like, okay, it's always already here, this true nature, awareness, love. It's here, always already. And we are continuously having this idea of how things should be, what we want, and what's missing. The fishbowl. I love it in this open sea. It's great. So in a way, when we watch ourselves in our daily lives, we can see how we take false refuge, how we're trying to get always trying to tie up loose ends, get things under control in some way, make things more secure. 
one of the primary ways we take false refuge is not in the enjoyment of pleasure, but in the continual chasing after. There's a sense, if only I can line up enough, have enough pleasant experiences, um, then it'll be okay. Then, then I'll have my fishbowl or whatever it is. So we hold tight to it. Um, I, I, somebody sent me this recently on this theme. A man and a woman were sitting beside each other in the first-class section of a plane. The woman sneezed, took out a tissue, gently wiped her nose, and then shuddered quite violently for 10 to 15 seconds. The man went back to his reading. A few minutes later, the woman sneezed again, took a tissue, gently wiped her nose, and then shuddered violently, as before. The man was becoming more and more curious about the shuddering. A few more minutes passed, and it happened again. She sneezed, she wiped her nose, and shuddered. And this time, he couldn't restrain his curiosity. So he turned to her and he said, look, you sneezed three times, wiped your nose with a tissue, and then shuddered violently. Are you okay? What's going on? And she said, I'm sorry if I've disturbed you, but I have a very, very rare condition. And every time I sneeze, I, then I have an orgasm. <laughs> and so, so, <laughs> so the man was a little embarrassed, but, but he was really curious about it. And he said, you know, I've never heard of that before. What are you taking for it? <laughs> So she looked at him and she said, pepper. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not about, false refuge is not because we're enjoying it. It's this constant drive to feed and fuel and grasp after pleasure. You can see it, you can watch it here in a really clear way. It's like, we're re- we've re- retreats are incredible because it's stripped away so many of the modes that we habitually use for false refuge, the ways that we're so addicted to email and going online, or at least I am. You know, the ways that we are constantly trying to distract and occupy ourselves, but we do it here in other ways. Um, sometimes, and this especially, you can see it over the pattern over time, there's um, sleeping more than we need to, what's sometimes called poor man's nirvana, you know, sleeping, <laughs> taking refuge in sleeping. We take refuge in our planning and our obsessing as to when we're going to have the shower and when we're going to fit in that hike that really feels really good because we go a certain amount of time and it gets our bodies just right. Or We really... Um, even at retreat, find ways, and food is a really big one, the obsessing around food. Um, we, we find false refuge as we hold on, and we can see how our minds do it. The biggest, though, I think, when we're really watching ourselves, is the dukkha we experience around something's wrong with me is the biggest one that drives us to false refuge. And it drives us in so many ways to trying to feel better about ourselves. So our biggest project on Earth is usually to try to feel good about ourselves, to make up, to compensate for some sense of a, a deficit. And, the, and we do that. We try to you know, deal with our bad personhood by being a good person. And so we have a lot of projects, a lot of self-improvement projects. Each of us knows about those. In daily life, a lot of it's to keep busy and see how much we can produce and accomplish. I know for myself, my, it's probably my biggest addiction 
is to soothe the sense of something's wrong with me by checking off a lot off the list. And in a temporarily it works, you know, just for a little bit, getting something done kind of soothes a little. And then, of course, it's, it's endless. It's like any other addiction, you just have to keep going. When we are taking false refuge from feelings of insufficiency, we're always trying to make the right decision and not make a mistake. And you can notice that the more that angst is there about something's wrong with me, the more difficult it is to feel at ease with lean to the left, lean to the right, which way will I go? One person writes this, he says, because we do this around exercise and meditation and food and work and how to balance and how to live our life right, and there's an undercurrent of I'm not going to get it right. The Japanese eat very little fat and suffer fewer heart attacks than the British or the Americans. Now, the French eat a lot of fat and also suffer fewer heart attacks than the British or Americans. The Japanese drink very little red wine and suffer fewer heart attacks than the Brits or the Yanks. Now, the Italians drink huge amounts of red wine and also suffer fewer heart attacks than the above. Now, the Germans drink a lot of beer and suffer, and it goes on and on and on. (laughs) Conclusion, eat and drink what you like. Speaking English is what kills you. (laughs) But you can feel it at retreat also. Should I... Should I do this, or should I spend time doing metta, or should I do this? We, or should I, is it okay to be with movement or sit still? And ultimately, ultimately, it doesn't matter so much. What really matters is the quality of attention we bring to anything. And it's true with our life decisions. But we can, it's out of that self-doubt and that angst that we really get wrapped up in that sense of we, we second-guess ourselves. It makes it really difficult. One of the other false refuges is trying to be a real likable person. Um, We really shape and mold our way of presenting ourselves to the world to be accepted. And that doesn't mean that it's not quite beautiful to to have that longing to belong and to want to connect, but we end up contorting ourselves. Um, We end up sometimes pretending. You know, it's just so, it's so interesting whether it's the little things like would we wash our hands if nobody else was around in the bathroom to other things that, you know, in terms of when we're driving and how we, how we treat other um, drivers. But there's a, there's a way in which we, we present ourselves. We're not quite, quite real all the time because of that fear of something's not okay. Um, we can see it at retreat. There's a sense of wanting to look good, and whether it's how we sit or how our shawl is or how we do in walking meditation. Have you noticed the self-consciousness sometimes that can come up in walking meditation? There's, there's the being really inside the sensations, and there's another part of the mind that's aware of how other people might see you when you're walking. I'll speak for myself. That is something that I've experienced. So there's, there's that sense of taking refuge in trying to look good or be a certain way. And then in a real basic way, and this sounds odd, a false refuge is the critical self-stories that we're addicted to. And the reason it's a false refuge, it's a refuge at all, is we think that if we keep right in front of us the what's wrong, that maybe we can fix it and get better. And there's a real fear about letting go of the self-stories. The deep level is, I won't know who I am. But on another level, 
we lose our major control mechanism. Our way of controlling ourselves is to monitor for what we think is wrong. So if we, very early on, were given a message of you're not okay, and that was linked with not being accepted and loved, then it really is important we get very, very vigilant about making sure we're monitoring for what's not okay, because we're in danger all the time. So we can watch it here. We can watch how that, that monitoring latches on to our spiritual practice, and how often with every meditation there's also a part of us that is watching and evaluating of how am I doing? Is this a good meditation? Am I trying hard enough? Often there's different ways we swing. Sometimes we swing to, into the striving. Other times we swing to resigning. Sometimes we swing to an attitude of the hell with this, I don't care. But they're all expressions of false refuge. They all come from that, that story that says something's wrong with me in a way that we're trying to in some way cushion ourselves from the pain of that story. Basically, any of these, what I'm calling false refuges, are ways of running away from experience that's very painful or hard to tolerate in some way. And um, I like the way Joko Beck put it. She said that the essence of spiritual life is to return to that which we have spent a lifetime hiding from, to rest in the bodily experience of the present moment, even if it is a feeling of being humiliated, of failing, of abandonment, of unfairness. (coughs) So it's a powerful inquiry, if we want to really explore taking refuge, to, to just to ask ourselves in any moment, well, what am I running from? What am I hiding from? In any moment, just to ask that, and it actually brings our attention back to what's, what's really here fully. The basic understanding of how we take true refuge, and the word siddha, many of you might know, means faith in Pali. Some of you might not. It has to do with the, the literal translation is really to rest our heart upon. And I love that. That sense that when we take refuge, we're resting our heart upon what is most true, what really is trustworthy. None of the false refuges work, or temporarily they seem to soothe, but they don't really work. So when we take true refuge, we're really resting our heart upon what genuinely is a pathway back home. So what I'd like to do is explore each of the three refuges and do it with a reflection, and to do it uh, not in order that's given traditionally, but to start really with refuge in the Dharma. Because a lot of our practice here is really the practice, in a very simple way, of belonging to the moment, of taking refuge in our moment-to-moment experience, refuge in the Dharma. Zen Master Ryokan writes, if you want to know the Buddhist law, drift east, west, entrusting yourself to the waves. So much of this practice then is to become aware of the waves of our experience and entrust ourselves to them. 
There's two basic questions that really um, guide us in taking refuge in the Dharma. And one question is, what is happening inside me right now? And the other question is, can I be with this? And that second part has all different levels. It can be, can I be with this? Can I let myself feel it? Can I be with this gently, kindly, with gratitude, as in thank you? And to the deepest way, can I be with this? Like genuinely entrust myself to the ways, or another way of expressing, or genuinely embrace this moment fully. What we find, though, between the moment of waves arising and, and that possibility is that there is a proliferation, a, react- a chain reaction of thoughts that separate us. And so the most basic practice that most of us are doing here is recognizing the stories that we're getting caught in and coming back. And we're doing that again and again. And it's powerful and beautiful and liberating to do that. I know the last retreat I taught, at one point one man said, you know, I'm finally getting it, that it's really about not believing my thoughts. And it was amazing. It sounds so simple. And for many people here, it's like, yeah, well, not believing thoughts. But to really get that, we, as long as we're taking our thoughts to be real, we are hooked. Again, I'll read you something somebody sent me on this theme. I get sent all sorts of strange things. People say, do you want to include this in a Dharma talk? And sometimes I do. A couple from Maine decided to go to Florida to thaw out during a particularly icy winter. They planned to stay at the very same hotel where they'd spent their honeymoon 20 years earlier. Because of hectic schedules, it was difficult to coordinate their travel reservations, so the husband left Maine and flew to Florida on Thursday, and his wife flew down the following day. The husband checked into the hotel. There was a computer in his room, so he decided to send an email to his wife. However, he accidentally left out one letter in her email address, and without realizing the error, he sent the email. Meanwhile, somewhere in Houston, a woman had just returned home from her husband's funeral. He was a minister for many years and had been called home to glory following a sudden heart attack. The widow decided to check her email, expecting messages from relatives and friends. After reading the first message, she fainted. The widow's son rushed into the room, found his mother on the floor, and saw the computer screen, and here's what it read. To my loving wife, subject, I've arrived. Date, 20th March, 2004. (laughs) I know you're surprised to hear from me. (laughs) They have computers here now, and you're allowed to send emails to your loved ones. (laughs) I've just arrived and been checked in. I see that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. (laughs) Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. Sure is hot down here. So the challenge, how not to be seduced into believing thoughts, believing ideas, believing anything but this moment, what is happening inside me right now? And then, can I be with this? It's not that some of our thoughts don't reflect what is perhaps a consensual reality. It's just that there's no healing and awakening unless we open to the experience 
that's right here now in our bodies. So the inquiries I just mentioned are really, really helpful. Any moment that you ask that question, what is happening inside me right now? It really helps to wake up out of the trance. Our our system gets contracted in the idea of what's happening, and it opens us up into the, the living experience. Sometimes we actually recognize what's happening, and that's not enough. We might say, what's happening right now? Well, what's happening right now is I'm angry, and I don't like what's happening, and I'm, I'm afraid, and then we go into the whole thought of what's going to go on, come next. And so asking what's happening doesn't really keep us in our bodies. Um, I love the description. Ajahn Sumedho describes um, wonderful Western, uh, many of you know, Theravadan lineage um, senior teacher. And he, he teaches that the, if you, in addition to you know, ask, doing that inquiry, when you discover what's going on and you find that you keep on um, weaving a web around it, that to cut through that conditioning to argue, where we're arguing with our experience or commenting on it or judging ourselves for it or thinking of how to get rid of it, to cut through just to say the words, it's like this. So that whatever's going on, oh, it's like this. I first heard um, this description um, of just those, using those three words just uh, about a couple of months ago. And I was, um, I was sitting at the forest refuge. I sat there for a month. And my first week, I kind of went in a bit of my type A yogi. I really went in kind of going for it and did extra long sits. And, um, and, and very slow walking for extended periods of time. And I must have stressed my leg, because at one point I was walking outside and I really injured my knee badly. And then my entire retreat was a different retreat from that point on, because I couldn't walk, I couldn't sit cross-legged, which was a real blow to my yogi ego. Um, and, and all I really could, and then when, and I tried to sit on a chair and got a back spasm, so I landed up on my back a lot. Well, the proliferation was really intense in terms of how could I have done this to myself? You know, what kind of a, here I teach this stuff, but I wasn't even in my body when I was making those steps. I don't know what I was thinking, what I was doing. How am I going to take care of this? I'll never run again. That was a really big one because I love running. So that was one level of it. And then on a whole deeper level, there was a sense of really being a bad person. Like, I, like the injury in some way reflected poorly on who I was. And, and so I heard this phrase of Ajahn Sumedho, and, that, and I began to realize that anything other than absolutely nailing the experience in the moment, it's like this, and just being with this much, just this much, this ache, this feeling of burning or twisting, or this sinking, grieving feeling that I was having for losing a part of my life, maybe, you know. Whatever it was, it's like this. And the power of it was that it really absolutely cut through this movement of the mind to keep on ping-ponging away from what we don't want to feel. I was taking false refuge in all my scheming on how to take care of myself. It was really simple. Ice it, arnica, stay off it. But my mind just kept going and going. It's like this. Taking refuge in the Dharma is actually, in a very simple way, 
completely bringing a committed presence to just this much, just this moment, just what's happening right here. And when we do, and this is the alchemy, Julie was describing it last night really beautifully, this is a kind of a magic that any moment of presence, and it doesn't matter what the weather system is, it really doesn't matter what's happening. If we can, in a moment, recognize what's there and bring a genuine, open-hearted, and committed presence, there's a transformation. And the shift is that our sense of who we are is altered. Instead of being the small self at war with how it is, we become that openness and awareness that recognizes and is with our experience. The sense of who we are shifts. So I want to just take a moment, if you will, to explore what does it mean right now for us to reflect on taking refuge in the Dharma, in belonging to the moment. So just to sit however is comfortable, to close your eyes if they're not already closed. And let this be a kind of pause where you can let go of a lot of the ideas and thoughts that might be flying around. And just inquire what's happening inside me right now. And then explore what it means to belong to these moments right now, this changing stream of experience. What does it mean to entrust yourself to the waves? Perhaps to the sensations that are predominant, the feelings in your heart, sounds, the breath. taking refuge, belonging to exactly the experiences that are arising in this body, heart, and mind. A poem of taking refuge in this aliveness called trusting prana, trusting the life force. Trust the energy that courses through you. Trust, then take surrender even deeper. Be the energy. Don't push anything away. Follow each sensation back to its source in breath and vastness. Find the energy behind the energy and focus your awareness there. Emerge so new, so vulnerable, that you don't know who you are. Welcome in the season of monsoons. Be the bridge across the flooded river and the surging torrent underneath. Be unafraid of consummate wonder. Be the energy and paradoxically 
be at peace? That's the answer to the question you may not have thought to ask. Be the energy and blaze a trail across the clear night sky like lightning. Dare to be your own illumination. Trust the energy that courses through you. Trust, then take surrender even deeper. Be the energy. So taking refuge in the Dharma, in the waves that are arising, for many of us, taking refuge in the moment-to-moment experience is only possible if we feel some sense of safety or belonging to something larger, maybe metaphorically a sense of belonging to the ocean so that it's safe to open to the waves. And taking refuge in the Sangha, which will be the next refuge, in our connectedness, our relatedness, is really, um, for many, one of what, part of what allows us to be in our moment-to-moment experience. For the Buddha, when, um, in one of the classic teaching stories, the monks who were meditating in the woods and encountered all these demonic and challenging and evil and scary spirits came running to the Buddha and saying, we're scared, we can't be with that. His response was to teach them the metta practice, which is really teaching them a practice of opening the heart and feeling connectedness. And that enabled them to actually end up enchanting the spirits and befriending the spirits that were in the woods. The Buddha's teaching that fear is great, but greater yet is the truth of our connectedness. So refuge in the Sangha is discovering and realizing and feeling the the sweetness and the protection and the truth of our belonging with each other. And traditionally, the reflection was to reflect on those spiritual friends, those monks and nuns that, that inspired us and reminded us of what was possible, that helped us on the path. And it can broaden to really meaning any reflection that you do that reminds you of that sense of that field of togetherness, that here we are together. I think it's, um, it's interesting to reflect on what, it, what really is happening in terms of a sense of belonging here, because all three of us have been just talking about it, how the, the beauty of the circle and this, this field of caring, and there is a softness and a quality of inclusion. And yet, just as I described the false refuges, every one of us can get very caught in feeling separate. And then when we hear about this field of belonging, it's almost like this this being, you know, a, a sunny day and being in a bad mood kind of thing. It's like, well, I don't get it. I don't feel belonging. And you might notice the more intense or difficult experiences of fear or, or anger or hurt, that when we're caught in it, we're even, we even f- feel more isolated. And so not everything that happens is the, the sweetness of feeling belonging here. And, and for many, um, 
there's, there's domains that are particularly challenging. I was mentioning uh, with, to Julie and Deborah on how little we speak about the whole drama of being in the dining hall. I mean, for most women in this culture, it's more abnormal to not have an eating disorder, (laughs) I think, than to have one, at least to some degree. And and I don't say that lightly. It's just that, you know, if we have a lot of fear in our system, one of the easiest ways to numb or to pleasure or to feel a sense of soothing is through food. And in, in this culture, it's really big. So all that goes through us around food, and yet we don't really talk about it much, and it can be a sense of real isolation and shame, like I'm um, feeling this. And I had a really amazing experience in Washington um, at a retreat last year, where in one of the small groups, we began to name what it was like to feel self-conscious or judgmental or ashamed or uncomfortable in the dining hall. And by the end, it was one of the most bonded groups I'd ever been in, because it became not my self-consciousness or my shame or my disorder, but just kind of our shared neurosis, our shared pain. It was very freeing. And it's one of the things I see in the groups here that is just so powerful, is that when we come in, and even if we come in and begin by not feeling a sense of of comfortability or ease in the naming of that. And as we go around the circle by the end, there's this quality of there is a shared field of caring. It becomes palpable. So taking refuge in the Sangha is any reflection or any experience with others that helps us to have our sense of who we are enlarged. So there's not just a sense of me and my pain and my struggle, but our shared challenge and our shared caring. Just to give you another example, um, that a couple of years ago, one of the women at a retreat that we had in Virginia um, had experienced a lot of uh, abuse as a child. And so when she'd get quiet and be meditating, a lot of terror would come up. And um, so, the, so we started exploring, well, what will make it safe enough to start just to, to be able to be quiet and be with that at all? And for a while, it was only safe enough for her to do it when I was with her. And I, and I, and I guided her to do a lot of metta and to pay attention to whatever part of her experience really was, was comforting and relaxing and gave some pleasantness and not to go into it. But gradually, what she was able to do was to bring to mind her sangha, which consisted of a best friend, her husband, and myself. She'd bring us to mind, and she'd sit there and imagine that we were with her, and we were seeing who we see, the goodness in her, and that we were keeping her company. And when she felt that, she felt kind of surrounded by a kind of a protective container. And then she could begin to be with her experience. And gradually, over the retreat, she said she ended up bringing in everybody in the retreat. So this whole group of um, fellow retreatants were her, were, were just created this field around her that she was able to sit within. That's taking refuge in the Sangha. There's so many different ways. I'm going to share with you one of my favorite stories of the power of, um, of this refuge. 
And it was written um, some years ago by Sister Helen Rosla. And uh, she writes this. She says, she was um, a teacher. She says, he was in the first third grade class I taught at St. Mary's. All 34 of my students were dear to me, but Mark Eklund was one in a million. Very neat in appearance, he had that happy-to-be-alive attitude that made even his occasional mischievousness delightful. Mark talked incessantly. I had to remind him again and again that talking without permission was not acceptable. What impressed me so much, though, was his sincere response every time I had to correct him for misbehaving. Thank you for correcting me, sister. I didn't know what to make of it at first, but before long I became accustomed to hearing it many times a day. One morning my patience was growing thin when Mark talked once too often. And then I made a novice teacher's mistake. I looked at him and said, if you say one more word, I'm going to tape your mouth shut. It wasn't ten seconds later until Chuck blurted out, Mark's talking again. I hadn't asked any of the students to help me watch Mark, but since I had stated the punishment in front of the class, I had to act on it. I walked to my desk, very deliberately opened my drawer, and took out a roll of masking tape. Without saying a word, I proceeded to Mark's desk, tore off two pieces of tape, and made a big X with them over his mouth. I then returned to the front of the room. As I glanced at Mark to see how he was doing, he winked at me. (laughs) That did it. I started laughing. The class cheered as I walked back to Mark's desk, removed the tape, and shrugged my shoulders. His first words were, of course, thank you for correcting me, sister. At the end of the year, I, asked, I was asked to teach junior high math. The years flew by, and before I knew it, Mark was in my classroom again. Since he had to listen carefully to my instructions in the new math, he did not talk as much as in ninth grade as he had in third. One Friday, things didn't feel right. We had worked hard on a new concept all week, and I sensed that the students were frustrated and edgy. I needed to do something. So I asked them to list the names of the other students in the room on two sheets of paper, leaving a space between each name. I told them to think of the nicest thing they could say about each of their classmates and write it down. It took the remainder of the period to finish their assignment, and the students left the room, each one handing me papers. That Saturday, I wrote down the name of each student on a separate sheet of paper, and I listed what each had said about the others. On Monday, I returned their list, each student with his or her own list, and before long, the entire class was smiling. Really, I heard whispered, I never knew that meant anything to anyone. I didn't know others liked me so much. No one ever mentioned those papers in class again. I never knew if they they discussed them after class or with their parents, but it didn't matter. The exercise had accomplished its purpose. The students were happy with themselves and one another again. That group of students moved on. Several years later, after I returned from a vacation, my parents met me at the airport. As we were driving home, Mother asked me the usual questions about the trip, but then there was a lull in the conversation. My father cleared his throat. The Euclids called last night, he began. Really, I said, I haven't heard from them in years. I wonder how Mark is. Dad responded quietly. Mark was killed in Vietnam. The funeral is tomorrow, and his parents would like it if you could attend. I had never seen a serviceman in the military coffin before. Mark looked so handsome, so mature. All I could think at that moment was, Mark, I would give all the masking tape in the world if only you would talk to me. The church was packed with Mark's friends. Chuck's sister sang the battle hymn of the Republic. Why did it have to rain on the day of the funeral? It was difficult enough at the graveside. As I stood there, one of the soldiers who acted as a pallbearer came up to me. Were you Mark's math teacher, he asked. 
I nodded as I continued to stare at the coffin. Mark talked about you a lot, he said. After the funeral, most of Mark's former classmates headed to Chuck's farmhouse for lunch. Mark's mother and father were there, obviously waiting for me. We want to show you something, his father said, taking a wallet out of his pocket. They found this on Mark when he was killed. We thought you might recognize it. Opening the billfold, he carefully removed two worn pieces of notebook paper that had obviously been taped, folded, and refolded many times. I knew without looking that the papers were the ones on which I listed all the good things of Mark's classmates that they had said about him. Thank you so much for doing that, Mark's mother said. As you can see, Mark treasured it. Mark's classmates started to gather around us. Charlie smiled rather sheepishly and said, I still have my list. It's in the top drawer of my desk at home. Chuck's wife said, Chuck asked me to put his in our wedding album. I have mine too, Marilyn said. It's in my diary. Then Vicky, another classmate, reached into her pocketbook, took out her wallet, and showed the worn and frazzled list to the group. I carry this with me all the time, Vicky said. I think we all saved our lists. That's when I finally sat down and cried. I cried for Mark and for all his friends who would never see him again. And I cried about the wonder of caring and the power of expressing it. So let's just take a few moments to, to do a brief reflection of refuge in Sangha. And again, just begin this pause and reflection by honoring and feeling whatever is true for you in your own heart right now. So our Sangha, those that we feel connection with, allow us to know the truth of belonging and also to know the truth of our own goodness. They serve as mirrors in a way. And the given is that we each forget, we each go into trance and forget that we belong and forget the innate goodness. So it's quite powerful and beautiful to intentionally bring to mind those where we feel some connection. So the invitation right now is to to bring into your awareness, as you have in the metta practices, someone that you feel a sense of belonging with, that you love and that loves you. And it can be someone that's a friend or a relative, It can be someone that's no longer alive. It can be a pet. Some being where there's a sense of belonging that's timeless, that you know is just there. And feel them right here now. And just sense if they were writing a list of what's good about you, what they appreciate. If you could look through their eyes at yourself. Again, just take a moment to do that. 
And then just to feel your own heart, sense what you appreciate about them. And then just to feel the field that's beyond any sense of you and the other, but just the shared place of loving. Taking refuge in that field of caring. And you might bring up into awareness someone else that in this open-heartedness you can sense that same belonging together. So then the next few moments of silence, just bringing into awareness anybody that helps you to feel the truth of non-separation, that experience of here we are together, The Buddha taught that our fear is great, but greater yet is the truth of our connectedness. When we take refuge in this field of caring, there's room for this living, dying world. So we take refuge in the Dharma, in really the life of just this moment, really belonging to the moment. And we take refuge in this field of relatedness. The final refuge to explore really is refuge in what's called the Buddha, our Buddha nature, which is really our awakened heart-mind. and. Um, I don't want to go too long, and I'm aware that I didn't pace things very well because we have just a few minutes to explore taking refuge in Buddha nature, which is could be for the rest of our lives the exploration. But I'll I'll just say a few words, and we'll we'll just um, just feel our way into it as part of a closing. That one of the um, reflections I do when I'm on my own sometimes is is I'll just say okay. I'm going to die in a few minutes or a few moments. And what is it that I want to pay attention to? You know, if I just have just these few moments, like, really, what am I taking refuge in? And it's a very powerful reflection because I, I, get, I make it very real. Like, I really establish that as there's just a few moments. So what matters? And for me, it always comes down to taking refuge in loving presence that um, not necessarily taking refuge in the particular, the breath of this moment, it's, it's actually taking refuge in this awareness, this presence that is suffused with love. And 
for different ones of us, we have a different um, language or image or feeling in our body of what it means to really take refuge in Buddha nature. But every one of us has this longing to belong to that, to loving awareness in some way. And so taking refuge in Buddha nature is really finding what is it that allows us to experience that. And traditionally, um, taking refuge in the Buddha often meant taking refuge in some embodiment of Buddha nature like the historical Buddha or like a, a bodhisattva that in some way expresses compassion and wisdom. So that's one way of taking refuge in Buddha nature is to bring to mind a being that expresses it. The other basic way is to remind ourselves of the qualities of Buddha nature that when we even say the words, like you might close your eyes and just hear the word openness, our wakefulness, our boundless love, and the practice of taking refuge in Buddha nature is to sense that is what's here, that is who I am. Some years ago, at a retreat, one of the teachers asked, do you all believe that you're awakening Buddhas? And it was a wonderful question. And I remember in my mind, I went, sure, sometimes. <laughs> and, but it was really this question that, that invited me to sense, well, what does it really mean to trust Buddha nature right here now? And um, what I've discovered when I work with, um, with students at retreats is that everybody has some taste because the truth is it's who we are. That awareness, that love, that openness is who we are. So we all have ways of experiencing it. So one of the inquiries is, how do you most naturally come home into that? And for many people, it's really helpful to have some image, some visual image. What I, for a number of years, have found really helpful, it comes from the Tibetan tradition, where I'll imagine... First, if, especially if I'm feeling, feeling small, and there'll be a sense of longing to belong to Buddha nature, I'll imagine a field of radiance, of light, of openness, of love, and I'll imagine that field is surrounding me and pouring into me. And I'll imagine that I'm surrendering and letting go into that. And then what I'll discover is that what I was longing for is who I am. But I first have to begin from a place of separateness by invoking it. So I think taking refuge in Buddha nature, because we are often caught in a sense of separateness, involves some sense of an image, sometimes of words. If I just mentally whisper the word beloved, that for me is a word that actually invokes an experience. For another, it might be Prajnaparamita, our goddess, or Omani Padme Hum. There's many different words that can, in some way, turn us back towards that light and that love that's within us. I was um, at a conference a few weeks ago and um, had dinner with Marion Woodman who was describing um, the power of an image that comes from the depths of our being, 
to bring us back to, it's like a, it's an archetypal image that by imagining and invoking and really spending time with, it actually waters and nourishes the seeds of what it, what it represents. So if our very nature is light and radiance and expansive and loving and we have some vision of that, it actually reconnects us with the reality that's there. So that's one way. And then the final way of, of taking refuge in Buddha nature is genuinely looking back into awareness itself. It's that question, who is here? Who am I? Who's listening right now? So I'd like to, as a kind of final reflection, take some moments just to explore a little bit of these. But to say that um, for some people, even at the very beginning of a meditation, just saying, I take refuge in the Beloved, or the Divine, or the Sacred, or the Buddha, is a, is a very powerful kind of cutting through. To just call on that actually can very powerfully reconnect us to our depths in a way that we can then be with our experience and really have room for what's there. So with that in mind, to again just take, for the last time, take some moments to close your eyes. And sense in this pause and in this silence the intention to come home to the deepest truth of who you are. And if what you discover as you even try that on is some challenging emotions, some resistance to let your refuge be bringing a very sincere presence to just that. Because there's nothing you can force. This isn't to manage the attention. But just to explore a bit. What does it mean for me to take refuge in the awakened heart-mind? What is the deepest and truest sense of awareness, of wakefulness, of love that we can touch? What is the truth of our being that if we were going to die in just a few moments, we'd really want to surrender into, to entrust ourselves to? In the Tibetan tradition, the description of this awakened heart-mind includes the quality of absolute openness, you might sense that openness, empty of any center, of any boundary, of any solidness, just openness. And then the quality of wakefulness, that this open, vast, boundless being is imbued with the quality of wakefulness. And finally, that this openness, this wakefulness is suffused with tenderness, with compassion, 
that we are this loving presence. And again from the Tibetan tradition, to describe a a way of remembering that actually has to do with why we overlook this so easily. And the teaching is that this loving presence is closer than we can imagine. So you might explore that. It's closer than we can imagine. Right here, right now, nowhere else. Loving presence is closer than we can imagine. That it's more profound than we can imagine. There's not an idea or concept that can really express it. It's more profound. It's absolutely here now, directly apprehended. Closer, more profound, that it's easier than we can imagine. Relaxing back and resting into what's always and already here. And finally, It's more wondrous than we can imagine. To rest in the aliveness, the wakefulness, and the beauty of true nature. This is the gift of taking refuge in Buddha nature. I want to thank you for your patience and your presence and um, just to invite you, however feels uh, alive and fresh and creative, to explore the refuges. And you can explore them at the beginning of a sitting, at the beginning of a day, or at any time through the day. Um, But just to imagine what would it be like if many, many moments through the day there was a remembering of the radiance and the love and the presence that is who we are how that would inform our lives. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.